Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome back. Today we're talking about knowledge, a fundamental element of education, but something that education research rarely addresses head on. So in this episode, we catch up with Dr. Kate O'Connor from La Trobe University about her work around the sociology of knowledge and how this relates to issues such as curriculum development, online teaching and the push towards academics engaging in open scholarship. There's a lot to talk about here. So just to get our bearings, I started off by asking Kate for a brief sense of how she goes about tackling the topic of knowledge in her own work. I think there are a great many different and really valuable ways um, to come at issues of knowledge and knowing. So the approach I've um, always taken has always been more uh, sociological than philosophical, so less kind of what is knowledge and defining knowledge in that sense, and more how do people working in educational institutions um, understand the knowledge of their disciplines and fields, and particularly what does that mean in relation to the kinds of decisions and implicit thinking that inform um, curriculum development. So I'm interested in knowledge making as a social practice in educational institutions, and particularly with um, curriculum development as part of that. Yeah, so you've mentioned curriculum and the ties between knowledge and curriculum. So I mean, everyone concerned with education should be thinking really carefully about knowledge and what counts as knowledge. So I mean, there are lots of questions here, but I mean, one of the obvious ones is, is knowledge for whom, for example? Are we talking about knowledge for individuals, knowledge for society? So I mean, what sort of questions should we be asking about knowledge? I think the questions we should be asking about knowledge are all those kinds of questions. I think that a focus on knowledge puts some of the more political questions on the table. So it draws attention to questions about power. It draws a question, attention to questions about whose voices are being heard and not heard and who's getting a say. But I think the other side of that is it also draws attention to the sort of substance of education in terms of what people are able to get out of education and the future possibilities enabled by that. So I think these kinds of questions are really important um, and they are some things that um, can be missed in a lot of the popular educational discourse. So they're not issues that go away if we don't talk about them, um, but they can be neglected or overlooked. So why do you think in education we don't talk about knowledge as much as possibly we should? I mean, everyone talks about learning. A lot of people talk about teaching. What is it about knowledge that doesn't have that same kind of push and you know, get people really kind of excited and talking about it all the time? So I think um, there has been that part of that is that shift towards talking about learning all the time that you've talked that you mentioned. So um, Gert Biesta has focused on this a lot. So in terms of his work um, critiquing what he's called the learnification of education, um, and he's argued that because of that, because of this discourse of learning, we see this tendency to overlook um, issues around content, around educational purpose, and around the relations of education, so the role of the teacher. So um, I think that knowledge in, in that sense is being overlooked because of this focus on learning. And, and, and part of that is all these kinds of debates about, um, you know, we don't need knowledge in the age of the internet. We need to be more student-centred and less content-centred. It's not about um, the teacher, it's about the student. And there are all these kind of things that coalesce that mean that the focus becomes more on learning and less on knowledge. And because of that, I think these questions um, about 
power and about purpose and about what is being enabled can be left out of the conversation. So I think, as you say, when we talk about learning and teaching, we are often talking about knowledge. And you, your work kind of focuses on a number of different shifts in contemporary education where knowledge is you know, fundamentally, if, if you believe what people say, is changing. Uh, this idea, this shift from instructivist to constructivist, I think we talk about constructivist learning all the time, but how do, how do you kind of describe it in terms of knowledge? The shift from instructivist to constructivist learning is about that shift towards a more generally student-centred approach. But these terms are often used, you know, they're very ill-defined. Um, constructivism is often just taken to mean, you know, good kinds of teaching that value students and instructivism is bad kinds of teaching that are all about a lecturer standing on a stage um, pontificating. Um, and I think that part of what my work is trying to do is to look at the nuances um, in terms of those debates and how, how are these things being taken up? So how is constructivism being defined in universities that purport to promote more constructivist teaching? And what does that mean in relation to how curriculum is constructed, where that occurs? And I was particularly interested in your work looking at online education. So you're looking at how these kind of shifts are taking place in a whole bunch of different places in higher education. But you're looking at the question of new forms of online learning coming into HE and how knowledge is maybe being kind of talked about. And really interested in terms of going through that, that project. First of all, I mean, what types of online learning were you talking about? So I started my PhD um, in uh, 2012. And I don't know if you remember, but 2012 was the year of the MOOC, according to the New York Times. So MOOCs were very much the flavour of the day at the time. And I was really interested in the kinds of um, partnerships that universities were developing at this time, which weren't just around MOOCs, but also with what is now called um, online programming management providers or, or OPM providers. Um, and so I looked at those kinds of um, partnerships in my work. So OPM providers are where these companies take on the teaching and administrative work of, um, of subjects and courses and leave universities with just the task of content development. So that was the kind of practices I was interested in. So I love EdTech. It has so many acronyms. So when you say OPM very quickly, it sounds like OPM rather than OPM. <laughs> it does, sorry. But also MOOCs, massive open online courses. So I guess philosophically, MOOCs started from this very kind of open knowledge, very kind of free um, kind of philosophy that lots of people could gain knowledge for no cost and it could be kind of, kind of you know, co-constructed and the OPM is very much private providers so I mean there's a quite interesting kind of um, dichotomy there. True although um, that is absolutely how MOOCs started and that's really valuable but what I was looking at was partnerships with formal um, education formal university partnerships and the kind of MOOC platforms that were developed then were far more aligned with um, the OPM kind of provider model. And since that time, the biggest MOOC ventures, you know, Coursera, edX, have moved into that kind of model where it's paid and, you know, um, a lot of those ideals have been lost. So what was happening to knowledge in these online courses? What did you find? So um, this kind of work has been called an unbundling of um, curriculum responsibilities from teaching responsibilities. And I was really interested in how... Um, academics working in different fields grappled with this question of developing um, curriculum um, for, for these new kinds of platforms and requirements and the ways some of their thinking about what mattered for curriculum might change um, as they did that. And so what I found was there was a far greater uniformity in what these academics, how they thought about what mattered as they moved towards 
developing curriculum for unbundled online initiatives compared with the diversity of thinking that was evident in the ways in which they talked about um, their wider teaching and purposes. So some of the things I found were a the uniformity was seen in a far greater shift in an emphasis on things like reducing ambiguity and complexity, breaking up and reducing content and that sort of thing, as well as um, a far more explicit and didactic approach to the delivery of content and um, a far more uh, prescriptive and templated approach to assessment. And so, and that was seen um, in both kinds of initiatives, so both MOOCs and um, the online program management initiatives. And that was despite um, an emphasis by some of those initiatives at the policy level um, for more constructivist forms of teaching. And it was despite a lot of the academics I spoke to um, talking about what they wanted to achieve in their teaching as more about sort of the kinds of things we might associate with constructivism. So working with student interpretations um, rather than um, just having students absorb predefined content. So why do you think that was? Was it the technology shaping what the, the, the educators could do? Was it the fact that the educators were just made to kind of rethink what they were doing? I think part of it was the um, challenge of developing curriculum for in it for a context in which you would not be present. So the technology is part of that. The technology is part of that removal. But I think really it was about that the unbundled relation. So the the pressures that emerge where you're not able to create that space for com complexity and manage in your teaching where things are misconstrued. So the pressure to define everything and bed it down because of that, because you don't want things taken off in a direction you're not comfortable with. So theoretically, how are you kind of unpacking that distancing? I, mean, I can think of lots of different possible explanations. What kind of worked for you? So I used curriculum theory to look at two um, particular curriculum issues. So firstly, um, uh, differences between disciplines and fields in the um, formulation of curriculum and um, Secondly, and the ways in which that's recognised in university strategy. And secondary, secondly, um, the push for constructivist pedagogies and the effects of that on curriculum construction. And I think using curriculum theory in that way enabled me to see um, some particular kinds of issues that haven't been well acknowledged and to, to sort of bring those to light. Um, so that includes things like um, the ways in which the important differences between disciplines and fields and the ways in which that might affect how um, new policies and strategies, um, the way the effects of those things on knowledge, um, the ways that's neglected at the level of university policy and the really limited ways in which um, constructivism is being defined within university strategy and the effects of some of that on the ways curriculum is constructed. Yeah, now I'm really interested in your kind of more recent strand of your work. You're beginning to write a lot about the push towards open research, open scholarship, and this idea of data sharing. So, I mean, before we get into the kind of problematic aspects of all of this, I mean, what's the promise here? What does open scholarship and open data involve? And what are the kind of the promises? What are the supposed benefits? So there's been a real um, emphasis on open scholarship in terms of, you know, enhancing the reach and accessibility of science. Um, and... That's important, but that does raise some particular challenges um, for what that means 
for qualitative research. Um, and those are some things that we've been trying to think through in our project. But we've also been trying to think about the real benefits that might emerge in relation to that. So we see a number of benefits in relation to that. Um, first is about the same, is about increasing um, the reach and accessibility of qualitative research. Now, qualitative research is often overlooked in, in, in public debate and public discourse, um, but we think it's really valuable. And we hosted a, um, a session um, a couple of years ago involving community sector representatives where they talked about, you know, that they would really like to have more access to the kinds of narratives produced in qualitative research and the benefit that could enable for the kind of advocacy work they do. Second is the real benefit in terms of just increasing the um, transparency of research practices. So this is about understanding how qualitative research gets done um, and how qualitative research studies are designed. And I think that's um, of enormous benefit potentially to graduate research students to, to understand um, some of those things. And third is just about, is about the uh, taking a more sort of historically informed sensibility in educational research. So thinking about the benefits of archiving um, and making available qualitative studies, not just for use in the present, um, but in terms of their potential value as a resource for future historians to understand social phenomena and um, social change. Um, and finally, I think there's just enormous opportunities here for methodological experimentation and some really wonderful studies have been emerging, including um, things we've been inspired by have included um, Mike Savage's work on social change in post-war Britain and um, uh, the reanimating data project led by Rachel Thompson in the UK. So that all sounds fantastic. But on the other flip side, you have written about some of the kind of the drawbacks that you've written about the ethical, epistemological and methodological challenges of open access agendas. So, I mean, what do we need to be thinking about here if we are going to achieve all those things that you've just you've just spruced? So there are a lot of um, potential issues with this. And, and these things are often talked about in relation to consent context and um, confidentiality. So there are issues in terms of um, whether qualitative studies can be understood outside of the context in which they are produced. Um, there are issues about how durable consent is across time and how that can be managed. And there are issues with qualitative research in um, the challenges of ever making anything purely confidential um, and the issues of making those sorts of things available. And as well, there are enormous challenges here in just in terms of the enormous time costs in making a study available for archiving. Um, but we don't see these things as sort of in principle reasons to not engage in the space, but more, more challenges um, to be negotiated and to think carefully about how this might be best achieved. And what's your hunch? Do you think in 10 years' time we are going to have this as kind of mainstream practice in education research, or are these challenges actually going to take a lot longer to really nut out? I think it's hard to say. Um, the OECD has been pushing for this since 2007, and um, we, do, we are seeing a lot of shifts. Some journals are acquiring it, particularly in the medical space. Some funders are acquiring it. And as that moves on, um, those shifts, I think, are going to occur. How long it takes um, is another question. Yeah, we were talking to Mark Warshower in a previous episode of the podcast, who was editor of um, AERA Open. I think he was saying 75% of authors were sharing data, which he saw as a real big kind of benefit of the journal. So I think it's happening. I guess my final question is, I'm really interested about what's on the horizon. You're an early career academic. Yeah. You've possibly got 40 years of your career ahead of you. I mean, where do you see the future of education research heading? 
Are there any issues that particularly concern you? Are there grounds for being hopeful? I think there's always grounds for being hopeful. I think that there are real challenges in doing good research in universities. Um, At the moment, there's a lot of time pressures. There's a lot of limits on research time. There's limits on the kinds of journals I can publish in and there's limits on the kind of research I can do that can be funded. But I think there's always... Um, hope. Um, there's, I think I, I see people doing wonderful work all the time. So I think there's always some space for that work to continue. But I don't think, I think there's also a lot of challenges in terms of doing that within the university system. And we are still both doing it in the university system. So there must be some reason for doing it. <laughs> so I get, well, many thanks for taking the time to do this, Kate. It's been great to actually kind of have a bit of time to catch up with you and get on to your work and good luck in the future. Thank you, Neil.